morning. Uh, like many of you, I got to, maybe had to, study Shakespeare in high school. Um, I also, sucker for punishment that I am, uh, did an English, second year English elective in university in Shakespeare as well. And now I kind of love what he does sometimes, but it can be difficult. Um, Shakespeare's Macbeth, however, stands out for both its darkness and cruelty, but also its resonances with the human experience. In this play, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, his wife, they conspire to kill the current king and so that Macbeth can take his place and they can rise to power. And so out of love for power, this leads down this spiral of darkness and, and murder. And now after Macbeth brutally stabs King Duncan in his sleep, he reunites with his wife and he says this, looking at his hands, this is a sorry sight still gripping the daggers. This is just moments after he's killed King Duncan. His wife thinks that's a foolish thing to say. She takes the daggers, runs them back, and and does what she thought Macbeth should have done. He's still standing there, and he's staring at his hands, and he asks himself if all the the water in the world could wash away the blood. And here's what he says. Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood? clean my hands? And he answers his own question, no. And he goes on to say that instead of cleaning his hands, if he put his hands in the oceans, it would turn all, the, all of it polluted uh, from his hands and the blood on them. Macbeth is stunned in horror. He is racked with guilt. His wife, however, she had earlier in the uh, act way back when She had invited the spirit world to invade her soul, to make her blood thick, she says, meaning to sear her conscience so that she could go ahead unhindered with that diabolical plan to murder the king. She has so hardened her heart to her own guilt and sin that she just mocks her husband for his sense of remorse. But later, and it seems that this is maybe part of Macbeth's point, or pardon me, part of Shakespeare's point for this bloody tale, Lady Macbeth goes mad, and sleepwalking, the truth of her guilty conscience surfaces. Rubbing her hands together, say the notes. Here's a spot. Out. Damn spot. Out. And she goes on. What will these hands, will they, will they never be clean? Here's the, the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, Oh, oh. Now Shakespeare's dark tale of Macbeth does what Shakespeare does so well. He brings us face to face with the realities of the human experience. Though cold-blooded murder is not something most of us can relate to very readily, that sense of what do I do with my guilt, that is an absolutely universal experience. And you don't need me to tell you that. Even as I read this short section, my sense is there's probably a few heads that were nodding in agreement, at least to some extent with what Macbeth felt. We, all of us, we know that sense of the weight of guilt. We've all had to wrestle with how we're going to handle it as well. 
In our text today, we'll see some deeply broken and heartbreaking attempts to deal with the guilt, ones that we might not be all that unfamiliar with. But we'll also see the hope that comes through the innocent one. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to write this text in this way. And now, Holy Spirit, we open up our hearts to you and to your work that we might hear the voice of the living God as we listen to your words this morning. Amen. Now, for those who are new here or just jumping in with us into our series, we've been working through Matthew's gospel, uh, a chapter. Each week, we'll look at the, the next chapter. And really, we're looking at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and who is this Jesus anyways? Last week in Matthew 26, we saw Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his followers. He claims that he will stick by Jesus through anything. We find out at the end of that chapter, however, that's not the case. And, and that, that, that relationship is ruptured, but that's not the only one. Judas, as Jesus predicted, would betray him to the authorities, making a profit in the process. 30 pieces of silver is the agreed upon price. And it's an eerie number because it relates to the prophetic witness from Jeremiah and Zechariah. So now we're picking up. Jesus is under arrest Peter has just denied his closest friend, and Judas has betrayed Jesus. So let's read chapter 27, verse 1. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, well, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's fields as a burial place for foreigners. That's why it's called, to this day, the field of blood. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded. Now just pause for a second. Matthew is showing us, and as you read the gospel again, you'll see how many times he says it is fulfilled. This fulfills that. He's showing us that that the story of Jesus being bound as he is, this isn't an accident of fate. This isn't just a great tragedy, but this is actually something that God has planned. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are using even this horrible moment to accomplish the salvation purposes of God. Let's continue, verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You are have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas, now, Jesus was a common name in the, um, in the ancient world, um, 
Barabbas was likely a zealot. The reason why he was there in jail is that he was probably trying in a military way to overthrow that current Roman government. So he's standing there, accused, charged, and then he says this, who do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, the guy who's trying to be king with a sword, or Jesus the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent a message to him, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered greatly today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed uh, in this reading, but so far, Matthew's gospel has been about whom? Jesus. Jesus is the central actor. He is healing people. He's teaching people. He's in confrontation with the Pharisees. But did you notice how different this section was? Where is Jesus? He is way in the background, standing in chains, saying nothing. Just four words. That's all we have of Jesus, really, in this scene. You have said so. That's it. Matthew is using that to draw our attention to the other people around Jesus in the story, to their thoughts, their motives, their struggles. Why? Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Matthew has recorded this story in this way to reveal the human heart, our condition, our need for a Savior. Last week, we looked at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas But we also look most closely at Peter, his big grandstanding claims, everyone else will desert you, Jesus, but I never will. And of course, (laughs) that same night, not only does he desert Jesus, he denies even knowing him. Let's just listen in again to that scene for a moment. Jesus is in the court. His fate is being decided at that moment. Peter is off at a distance listening in. And then someone asks him, hey, aren't you one of those Galileans? Aren't you with Jesus? Let me read the third time that he denies it. Then he, Peter, began calling down curses, and he swore to them, I don't even know the man. Immediately, the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter, overconfident as ever, convinced of his own valor, he does exactly what he believes he could never have done. Not sure if you've ever been there before, but please don't put up your hands because all of us, I think, probably have. Like imagine you had a tape recorder like just dangling on your neck for the whole day, recording everything you said. Imagine as well that it could just pick up every thought that you've had. Now here's my question. How long, how many days, if days, if hours, would you go before you step over and do something or say something or think something that actually are against even your own standards. 
let alone God's standards. In their song, Brave Young Man, Jared and the Mill, they sing out, I've told myself that I'm better than most, but to my friends, like to those who know me best, I'm as see-through as a ghost. I don't think they're the only ones who've ever felt that way. We might like to tell themselves, you know, I'm actually better than most people around me. I can kind of look down on them, you know, from up here and just, I have this place, but, but those who know me most, my wife, my kids, those who see me in all of the mess as well, what would they say? Man, I'm as see-through as a ghost to them. And we are. So the question is, what will Peter do with this denial of Jesus? As the rooster crows, he recognizes what just happens and the penny drops and so does his heart. And he went outside and wept bitterly, heart broken. And he's not just feeling sorry for himself. That's important. Yes, out of desperation to protect his own neck, he has ditched Jesus. And that ruptures the relationship. He's thrown his friend under the bus, and that rupture of a relationship we see actually ruptures his own heart. We have the record of Judas and his remorse right next to Peter's failure. That's on purpose. Matthew has structured that with a very clear clear purpose in mind, that we're to look at these two responses and then ask ourselves, what will we do with our failure? In Peter, we see remorse, yes, What does he do with it? Where does it go? How is it different than we see how Judas handles his guilt? As we hear the Judas story, it is absolutely heartbreaking. Though we don't know every detail for his motive, we do know that he is experiencing crushing guilt. And the temple leadership are doing nothing to help him, to give any sense of pardon. So it seems then Judas feels like, I've just got to pay for this myself. He has remorse, yes, but he doesn't, It doesn't lead him to repentance. It doesn't lead him to change or to life. The Judas story is so heartbreaking because as we've seen all along in this gospel, Jesus came to rescue sinners from our sin. The birth narrative. We see the angel comes to Joseph and he tells him, she's going to have a son and you're to name him Jesus, a a name which means he saves because he will save his people from their sins N.T. Wright puts it well. There's a big difference between remorse, such as that of Judas, and genuine repentance, such as that of Peter. There is a watershed between them. Like drops of rain falling near a mountaintop, they start quite close together. But depending on which side of the line they fall, they will make their way either to one side of the country or the other. I mean, some of you have stood at the Continental Divide, right, near Field, B.C.? That's the place where the water either goes into the one ocean or to the other. The watershed sends it in different directions, right? Continues. Remorse and repentance both begin looking at something you've done and realizing it was wrong. But the first goes down the hill of anger, recrimination, self-hatred, and ultimately self-destruction, the way that leads to death. The second goes down the route Peter took of tears, shame, and the way back to life. For Judas, his remorse follows the side that is not ultimately seeking God's redemptive love. The irony, however, of of, of this side, of that self-focus, is that it actually turns into self-destruction. It always does. Now, tragically, remorse in this mode turns to self-hatred, and for Judas, it ends in real physical self-destruction. 
But I think that same kind of pathway of thinking, of of self-focus for ourselves can actually lead us down a path away from genuine repentance. It could threaten to keep any one of us from the life of freedom and love that God desires. You know, I, I know it's common in our day to say something like this, I have no regrets. Okay, that sounds great, like on paper, maybe. Um, maybe you've said it yourself, I don't know. But is that really an honest reflection of our true condition? Like, can we really look at our lives and say, there's nothing in my life where I wish I didn't have a do-over, a mulligan, uh, or something maybe that I wish I had done? Can we really say that? You know, I was wondering where that idea of people saying no regrets comes from. And so I Googled it, which is always a great place to start, the or- Oracle of Google. And the first thing that came up with this picture, and I said, I just got to stop there. That's enough. Yeah. Really? No regrets? Like not even one letter? I've been, yeah. <laughs> In the entry for remorse, this word that we find here, One of the best biblical Greek dictionaries puts it like this. To have regrets is about something in the sense that one wishes it could be undone. You know, this... um, just this past week, my wife and I got home from a great like week and a half of vacation with our kids, and and we were we had a mountain of laundry, maybe this tall. I don't know. It was a lot, and um, both Catherine and I were really tired at that point too. And and we began to talk about the workload in the house and how it may never get done. And you've never had that kind of fight before. I know it's just us. We're the only ones ever. But in our tiredness and frustration, we actually were acting quite selfishly and unkind, and. Um, we apologized to each other and we, within, you know, 12 hours or so, we were able to laugh at how ridiculous we were in our overtired state, like a couple of three-year-olds. Anyways, but oftentimes it's not just being ridiculous. Sometimes we simply lack the grace and humility or kindness of Christ and we act out of our sin nature. And that attitude comes to the front. You know, to say I have no regrets, I would actually have to have absolutely no standards of goodness or truth, or right and wrong. Now, at the one level, we could say, yes, even my sin and the things I wish I could undo, God has used those to grow me and strengthen me and deepen me so that I can even rejoice to some extent in my failure, not because I have no regrets, but because God is so good and he has used even my folly and my foibles and my sin to further strengthen and shape me. His grace can redeem even the ugliest things I've done, and that is true. Absolutely. But to say I have no regrets outright, that's just out of touch with reality. That's like having a no regrets tattooed on your neck and not regretting it. The Bible describes the reality of sin, of brokenness, of wanting my own way rather than God's way, apart from God and his wisdom. And it says that that's something we are all bound up in. So maybe you're here this morning, and, and maybe you don't know a whole lot about Christianity, but you're just interested to find out a bit more. And maybe you've been drinking in that idea of, yeah, we can just live with no regrets, but maybe you're rethinking that. Maybe deep down, or maybe it's actually not that deep at all, <laughs> you know that you have to deal with this sense of guilt and failure somehow. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus, and you know all of this, but you're finding yourself again in something like a Peter moment. 
And maybe you're in a place of teetering on that edge of either self-centered remorse or genuine and true repentance. So what do you do with your guilt now? Matthew wants to highlight this difference between Peter and Judas. Both have crushing failure. Both begin in tears. They're ripped apart on the inside. But then what? What about Peter? His remorse doesn't end there. Tears, yes. Sorrow, that's true. But the direction it flows reorients him back to God and his grace. This difference is so key to us. This is the kind of sorrow, actually, that James writes about. He might even be thinking of this event when he says it. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound very upbeat to us, but it does sound in touch with reality, actually. Because it's saying, I need my heart to be ready to shift if it's going to shift. Then look at the next line. Is Here's the promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Yeah, there'll be consequences for your sin. There will be. But you can have a sort of peace. You can rest in a reality that God no longer holds that against you. That is such good news. James invites those of us who have messed up to actually draw near to God. Don't run from him. Don't try to hide. Don't try to pay for your sin yourself. Don't run from God. In that moment of recognizing your failure, don't deny it or push the blame onto somebody else, but just own it. And this godly sorrow that comes with it, when we bring that to God, man, it opens up this path to receive real forgiveness. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's a promise for you today. You know, this text actually gives us another angle as well on this same subject. The other major figure in this passage is Pilate, the governor. I mean, his job is to keep the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and to do it at the end of a sword, more or less. Now, some people have thought that the gospel writers are actually being pretty sympathetic to Pilate in this text. I don't think they are. Um, We know from sources outside of the New Testament, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian in particular, that Pilate was brutal. He was a brutal ruler. He would allow his soldiers to kill innocent, unarmed civilians willy-nilly. What matters to Pilate is that Jesus' death is not his responsibility and to maintain that sense of peace, even at the expense of justice. Again, N.T. Wright says it. When Paul washes, or pardon me, when Pilate washes his hands, Matthew doesn't think for a moment that he is any less guilty. No, Pilate, the water won't just wash it off. No Macbeth it won't either, or Lady Macbeth. Wright continues, the point is not that guilt is in fact transferred to the crowd and to their children. The point for Matthew is that all are guilty. The chief priests, the elders who handed him over to Jesus, Pilate, the weak bully, and the crowds themselves. We need to see highlighted and in bold that Matthew's point is exactly that. Everyone on that scene is guilty. So was Peter. So were the disciples who deserted Jesus. And then as we back up and look at the big picture of spiritual reality, what we find is the scriptures teach us that actually none of us has lived in a way where we haven't walked outside of and away from God's good design for us. All of us, it says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of who God intended us to be. 
none of us has lived out, as I pointed earlier, up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. But Matthew's point is that we, all of us, all of humanity, yes, we're guilty of sin, but he says it to announce that there's good news, very good news. But you know that the good news isn't good unless you understand that there's bad news. And he's highlighting the bad news in this chunk. Yes, this section, Matthew makes it clear that there is bad news. There is sin. There is guilt that goes with it. There is brokenness. But he does it to tell the truth of where we really stand. Why? So that we can put our trust in Jesus, the only innocent one on the whole scene. See, Matthew's focus uh, not only contrasts Peter and Judas, it contrasts Jesus and humanity. All are guilty, true. But then Jesus, the innocent one, comes shining to the foreground. Judas shouts it out. He says, truly, I have betrayed innocent blood. How do the temple leaders respond? Did they say, no, you're wrong. He's guilty. They don't. Why? Because they know he's not. They are falsely accusing him, and they know it. It's like they're whispering, even as they arrest him, we know Jesus is innocent. And the words of Pilate's wife don't have anything to do with that innocent man. You'll notice that Pilate agrees with her. As he addresses the crowd who are now calling out crucify, Pilate asks, why? What crime has he committed? He knows, as Matthew has told us, that they are condemning Jesus out of self-interest. This is a rupture of justice, and Pilate knows it. The answer of the crowd, Matthew says it like this, but they all shouted all the louder, crucify him. The crowd, they themselves have no answer to that question. They are implicitly acknowledging Jesus' innocence as well. So Matthew's big purpose here is to highlight this contrast, the difference between humanity, broken as we are, and Jesus, perfect as he is. The only one who's innocent, truly innocent in every way, is the one who stands there and says nothing in his own defense. See, the good news is there is someone on the scene who is innocent. And that innocent someone will make a way for us guilty everyone else's to truly be made clean. Judas despairs of life itself. Pilate washes his hands in a desperate attempt to somehow transfer his guilt to others. It's a it's a failure to try to clear his own name. But Peter, through genuine anguish and tears, he finds a different way forward. His remorse doesn't end in remorse. It ends in repentance and a new start. See, Jesus comes for a walk with Peter, and he rebukes him gently but firmly. And then he gives him a new assignment. And as the Holy Spirit comes into Peter's life, he is given this fresh energy a life renewed and in love with Jesus. He will go on to give leadership in the church and to preach to a massive crowd gathered in Jerusalem. This is right as the Holy Spirit has come on the church. He says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Notice, who is, who is you? It's every one of his hearers. He's saying there is nobody who isn't in some ways implicated with the death of Jesus. Whom you have crucified. What? both Lord and Messiah. He is the king. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we read, those 
who accepted his message were baptized. They went under the water, signaling that they had a new start, that their sin was being washed clean. Um, we're going to have a baptism ceremony in uh, Mar- uh, September 8th, like our big kickoff day. We're going to baptize people that day. Maybe, maybe that's you who needs to get in there. They're being baptized. They're showing that they have turned their life over to Jesus, and they're signaling it to the rest around that they are now clean from their sin. That's what this signals. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. How do we remove the stain, the guilt? Out damn spot, says Lady Macbeth, guilt tormented. Or, oh, I can just pretend that the guilt isn't on me, Pilate says, flicking the water from his hands. At least Judas understands the gravity of his sin. He makes no attempt to hide it. But his approach loses touch with the most important reality of all. This Jesus whom he's betrayed will die, but he will die for him. That's the reality we need to be in touch with today. The deep, deep love of Jesus expressed in his self-giving because there is no other effective way to deal with your sin. Yeah, it means honestly acknowledging our guilt and confessing it to God. It means seeking restitution and forgiveness for those we've, from those we've wronged. But here's the irony. Jesus knows, Judas, pardon me, knows he's betrayed innocent blood. Pilate says the same thing in futility. I am innocent of this man's blood. Here's the irony. The blood on their hands, this innocent blood, Jesus' blood, is exactly what can remove the spot of sin. It's exactly this blood that has the effective, um, that can effectively do everything that we need so that we can be back in relation with God. See, no one of us, none of us can stand before God with any plea except with this beautiful hymn and how it says it. Just as I am without one plea, not I wash this hand, my hands of it, not I transfer this onto someone else. No, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. Yes, he does. He bids you come. What's your response? Oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. And when, oh, just as I am and not, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, oh, Lamb of God, I come, I come. So what about you? How are you dealing with your guilt? This is where we're ending, by the way. Are you hiding it? Are you denying it? Are you saying it's not my problem? Are you blaming others? Or like Judas, are you letting it crush you, thinking that you have to take it on yourself? The innocent one, this is the good news, takes your place so you can be new and forgiven and free. And that innocence of Jesus really matters. It can be effective, a pure and holy sacrifice to God. One time, nothing else needed. As Jesus dies, we read this. And when Jesus had cried out again while hanging on the cross, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the temple was torn from top to bottom in two. His death makes it possible for us to walk into the most holy place, into relationship with the living God. How? It's only through what Jesus has accomplished in that moment on that one day. There is no other way to be cleansed of your guilt and shame to be restored but this. That's Matthew's point in this text. And that's what is the foundation of our community. That's what the church is built on, is what Jesus has done right there. Matthew points us the way back home and says, will you go there? Will you follow the loving leader? Will you let him clean you? 
If you haven't come, why not today? And I was just five years old when I understood for the first time and, and opened my life up to God. I was laying in my bed. I'd been to the evening service at our church back when they had like a different service in the evening. And the preacher had talked about sin and the need for forgiveness. And I got it. And I was laying in my bed and I invited Jesus to be, I, I prayed something like this. Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I want to live with you and for you. I don't know what I said quite, but I felt this like sense of, just guilt lift off of me for all my five-year-old sinning. (laughs) But it was there. This sense that I was not right with God was there, and it lifted when I prayed that prayer. Now, that's not everybody's um, experience, but that is what is on offer for you, that you can be free. You can be guilt-free today. That is open to you. Have you put your trust in Jesus for that? Or maybe you have, but as Peter mentioned, there's this step of baptism that signals new life in Christ. And maybe for you, you need to step out and say, actually, I have trusted Jesus, but I I really haven't made it known. I really haven't identified with him publicly. Jesus says, if you are my follower, you do that. Maybe you need to. Come and talk to myself or one of the other pastors today, and we'll arrange that coming up in just a few weeks. What's stopping you? If you put your trust in Jesus, why haven't you done that yet? Just talk to us. We We can chat with you about it. Or perhaps... You've been trusting Jesus for a while now, but instead of bringing your sin to him regularly to deal with, you're denying it or hiding it or thinking you've got to take it on yourself. My question for you is this. Did Jesus die for nothing? Did he die not for that? I, I don't know. See, through his death, he removes sin. He makes a way forward for you. A way that you can now more and more reflect his goodness and glory. He's transforming us from the inside out when we, when we take that good news into us. Every single stain of guilt and shame can be washed clean. That doesn't mean there's no consequences for our sin, but they're not ultimate consequences. We can have an inner peace and freedom that we're reunited with God, and we can know that that will go on for all of eternity. Why don't you pray with me as the worship team comes? Uh, God, I am so, so thankful for this text. I'm so grateful, Lord, that through your spirit, um, Matthew wrote it in this way so that we could come face to face with maybe some of the broken ways that we try to deal with our guilt. But then we see in the end, Jesus, that you're the one who makes us clean, who makes us pure. So we give you thanks, Lord, for that, that opening. And we ask, Lord, if this is bringing stuff up for us that we need to confess to you, Lord, that there would be nothing stopping us. That we would come to you and find that you make us new.